0: Turn to that Daniel 1 passage again, 737 in the Red Bibles, if you're using that. When I was growing up in college, they said the biggest three questions that any person has to answer in their life is, who am I, why am I here, and where am I going? I think there's one that precedes all of those. In fact, I think if you don't answer the one that precedes all of those, you might, in fact, you will get all the other ones wrong, and that is, who is God? The problem with people who don't know the Lord today is they don't connect the God identity question, who is God, to the self identity question, who am I? And that's not surprising because they're not even begin to expect that they know God or believe in God per se, even. But what about believers? The problem with some believers, and perhaps even some of us here today, is that we don't keep those two together. See, we know that the God identity and the self-identity question goes together, but too often we are very good at wanting the God identity question so that when we die we go to heaven, we are his, we know that we're his children. But on a daily basis, the self-identity question is often disconnected from it. And that's why we get what I call cultural Christians, Christians who claim to serve the God of heaven with their lips, but the gods of the earth with their lives. Daniel chapter 1, in fact, the entire first half of the book, the narrative part of it, is asking us the question, how do we keep those two together as real Christians on a daily basis? How does who God is define and impact who I am? And we decided, or unpacked last week, that... God is in control of everything, and in verses 2, 9, and 17, the verb is repeated, and the Lord gave, and God gave, and the Lord, so he is sovereign, who he is. He is a sovereign God in control, and you need to know that if you're going to live a pro-God life in an anti-God world, you're going to have to know who God is, that he's in control, not your boss, not your spouse, not the government, but God, Nebuchadnezzar may be in charge in Babylon, but God is in control, in charge of Nebuchadnezzar. Knowing that, though, there's always going to be, and you're going to see it in the text for the very first time, there's always going to be a conflict. A conflict between, and I call it, a tale of two cities. From the very outset of the story in Daniel in chapter 1, They were taken from Jerusalem, where God and the temple and everything was, and now they're in Babylon, in a place where their God is no longer welcome. In fact, Babylonian gods, who are not gods at all, rule and reign, so to speak. And there's this tension, this tension about how to be in Babylon when your heart is in Jerusalem. Now, let me just tell you up front today, if there is no conflict in your life, if you think and call yourself a Christian, but there isn't really any conflict between you and Babylon, can I say? Then there's a problem. Because here's what the Bible says about our spirituality. We are spiritually located in Christ, or in this case, in Jerusalem. But physically, we are located, or geographically, in Babylon, and can I tell you, if both of those realities are true in your life, it will always, listen, always, to one degree or another, produce a conflict. So I'm talking this morning to Christians who find themselves in both of those places. You find yourself in Jerusalem, i.e. in Christ, but at the same time, you are in Babylon. And the key question I want you to ask yourself, the key question for Daniel and his three friends And the key question for all of us this morning is this. It's not which city you will live in, but which city you will live for. And that is the question that Daniel and his three friends had to ask every single day. And if that's the key question, then here is the key conflict. See, Babylon wanted to define Daniel and his three friends. Babylon wanted to tell them who they are. And so does God. God wanted to say, See, Daniel, this is who you are. Shadrach, Meshach, Abed, this is who you are. And there was a conflict because God and Babylon wanted to define their identity. That was not only true in the ancient Near East hundreds of years ago, but can I tell you today, not much has changed because it's also true in contemporary modern times. America wants to define you. America wants to tell you who you are, and at the same time, for Christians, so does God. You don't have to look too far around in our culture to watch a television program, or read a magazine, or a book, or watch a movie, or be on social media to know that that's absolutely true. But see, there are two approaches to who you are, and every day, like for Daniel and his friends, you and I have to choose which one that we believe. See, the world wants to tell you this. You are your body. You are your looks. So your body is yours. And so if you want to get rid of your child before it's born, you should because it's your body. And they want to tell you that you're really defined by your externals. You know, if you're beautiful, then you're worth a lot. If you're not so beautiful, not so much. You are your grades. Our world wants to tell us that it's your intellect. It's your university that you attended, and the degrees that you have behind your name, and how smart you are. And God wants to tell you, that all is well and good, but it's, do you have the wisdom to live for me in this world? See, America wants to say you are your abilities or your talents. And really, your main significance in life comes from whether you could kick a ball, dunk a ball, throw a ball, or something with a ball. Or whether you can sing and you have great musical abilities. And God wants to say, I gave you those abilities, but that is not who you are. See? You are your possessions. And the world wants to say, see, you are really important and you are really powerful if you drive this kind of car and have these kind of clothes and you go this place on vacation and you have this kind of a house and this this is the neighborhood that you live compared to someone else. And see, the world says that's who you are and God says, oh no, it's not the things that you possess. It's what possesses you. The world will say it's you are your sexuality You are your job, your career, whether you're successful and you have position and people look up to you and you have a trail of accomplishments behind you. You are your past, the world will tell you. That's who you are. And see, when your parents told you you were worthless, well, they were right. And they said you'd never make anything out of yourself. And everybody else knows that you're a failure, so we're not surprised that you are one. And see, the world has... A rival story to the gospel story. They are competing narratives. And both of them, God in America want to tell you who you are. And see, if you're going to make it in America and live for God, you have to know who He is and who He says you are. And with all of us in this room, without exclusion, all of us every day, in small ways and large ways, we choose and live out the story we believe is best. The one that defines us and tells us who we are. Now, in the ancient Near East, there was, when you conquered a people, like the Babylonians did when they conquered the Israelites, there was a process that you went to, and it was called assimilation. And the goal was to get the highest people with the biggest degrees, and you could read in the text, the people who were the professionals, who had the nobility, the intellect, the training, the schooling, all the talents and abilities. We took the cream of the crop, they would say, and they're going to assimilate them. They want to get rid of their country, their origin culture, the original culture they came from, and they want to assimilate into Babylonian culture to really forget where they came from and what they believe and the God that they served. And they need to adopt the new ones, the Babylonian ones. God has a different program. His is not assimilation; is integration. We maintain our original culture and all the while learning from and trying to impact the other culture that we were in. And see, that's what you and I have to choose from every day. Daniel and his free free friends were what I would call bicultural Christians. See, they lived in Babylon, but they were living for Jerusalem. Now notice in the text, They do not hide out from Babylonian culture. They do not create some Jewish ghetto way outside of Babylon and live on their own, have their own everything else, and they're separate completely from Babylon. That's not how they live. They lived in Babylon. They went to what I'm going to call Babylon University. They took the courses. They lived in town. They were around everybody else. They eventually spoke the language. They read their books. And also... Not only did they not build a ghetto way outside of town and be completely separate, but when they lived in town, they didn't just become like everybody else. Like a lot of Christians today, our views on moralities and values and priorities are virtually no different than anybody else who is not a Christian. There was a survey taken and said... To people who had God in their life as an upbringing and people who didn't have God in their life as an upbringing. Is it okay to have sex before marriage? And the degree was the group that did not, that was not brought up with God, said 23% of them said it was wrong. Only 23. And the Christians were only 28. See, that's assimilation. But integration says no, I'm in the culture, I'm in Babylon. But I'm not letting Babylon in me. That's what Daniel and his three friends were all about. So they are checked into, by force of course, Babylon University. I I took, my wife and I took some things down to McKenzie at Liberty University at LU. And uh, I took some things. She's moving in an apartment first time, she didn't have anything. And so we went down there. But when you go on Liberty University campus, it's definitely Christian. You're walking around. They have speakers everywhere praying, playing worship music. There's a big church on campus. And there's a chapel, and they have services, and things have verses all over them. Can I tell you, Babylon University wasn't like that. Not at all. There was completely different culture than what they were ever used to. And Babylon University was a three-year, the text says, a three-year intensive cultural immersive course. And here was the goal of it, ready? To completely obliterate their old identity and give them a new one, to give them a Babylonian identity. And so here's how they started. The first course, verses 6 and 7, you can read it for yourself. And it says in the text, in verse 6, it says, among these... I'm sorry, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And before that it says, and they gave them new names. They changed the name, verse 7, Daniel became Belteshazzar. Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah became Abednego. And isn't it funny that when we tell the children's story that we use the Babylonian names, not not the Jewish ones? But what they were doing by giving them new names, were trying to give them a new identity. Because Daniel in Hebrew means, God is my judge. Whereas Belteshazzar means, may Bel, who is the god of the Babylonians, may Bel protect your life. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious, whereas Shadrach means command of Aku, that was the moon god that they worshipped. Mishael means, who is like our god, but Meshach means, who is like Aku, the moon god. Azariah means the Lord is a helper. Abednego means servant of Nabu, which was the son of their main god, Marduk. So they changed them. They changed their names. Now watch. Surprisingly, a little bit, at least to me, that they didn't resist that. They didn't, exchange, they didn't resist being called those Babylonian names. Although I think probably in private they went and called each other the Hebrew names. But here's what they resisted they resisted becoming those names. They resisted the God, little g part, that went along with those names. And they resisted, hear me, no matter what. I think if Daniel was here, he would say this, you can call me what you want, but you cannot change who I am. See, Babylonian beliefs at the core are about naming things something different. If you have your Bible, please hold. I want to show you a passage in Genesis chapter 11. The land of Shinar, which Daniel 1 says they were taken captive to, Babylon, is the place where Babel or Babylon originated. Originally, it was the tower of Babel when they tried to build a ziggurat to the heavens so they could say that they were gods. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4 that these people had made a brick pyramid or ziggurat to the heavens. And it says, verse 4, God says, then they said, I'm sorry, the Babylonians at that time said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Underline it. And let us make... A name for ourselves. See that? Let us make a name for ourselves. We define who we are. We have the authority. We're going to take God's name. Now, in contrast to the people around the Tower of Babel, the earliest original Babylonians, as it were, there is Abraham, follower of God. The Babylonians say this, We'll make a name for ourselves. But look at chapter 12 and verse 2. God tells Abraham to leave his country, to leave his family, to leave all the foreign fake gods he had behind. And here's what God says. You leave that behind and I'll make a great nation. I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you. Circle it. And I will make your name great. There's the choice. See, Babylonian people who don't know God, they make their name great. But followers of God, Abraham, they let God make their name great. You know why? Because there's a big difference. And who will get to name you? So let me ask you, who names you? Who gets to name you? Who has the authority in your life? See, in the Bible, when you name something, you have authority over it. God named Adam and Eve because he created them. Adam named the animals because God gave him authority over them. Parents in the Bible name their children because children ought to obey their parents because they're their God-given authority. Jesus named the demons. What is your name? He says, Legion. You know why? Because Jesus had authority over the demons. He renamed the disciples. You are now, you were Simon, now you're Peter. Saul became Paul. Abram became Abraham. Why? Because God has authority. And in the end of time in Revelation, the Bible says that when you get to heaven, God's going to rename you. He has another name for you. Why? Because he's over everyone. But the question is, who names you now? God or Babylon? God or America? America? God or you? Who names your kids? Teenagers, who names you? Who's an authority in your life? I mean, really an authority in your life. See, there's a lot of labels, like they were given, names that you can have in our day, and behind them oftentimes is a God. Now, they're not real official names, but they are labels. And people could, you could grow up and someone says, here's a label for it, you're an athlete. And behind that is, they mean by that, then worship the God of sports. Give your whole life to it, make it more important. Don't even go to church for it. Forget God. Even do everything you want on Sunday as if it's a Saturday. And just forget all about Him. See, they can call you athlete. But the truth is this, will you be faithful to God and be called by His name? They could call you honor student, and education can be the God. And you're going to get this degree, and you're going to get this job, and you're going to make this much money, and you're going to have all these things behind you. And see, not because there's anything inherently or innately wrong with those things, but in our world, they've become idolatrous for many. Successful, that's a label they'll give you because they want you to worship the God of money and materialism and having things, and that's going to be who you really are. They could label you beautiful. Because in our culture, sex is everything. And your looks and how skinny you are, how beautiful you are. They could call you executive because they want you to make an idol and a god out of your job and forget your marriage and don't spend time with your kids and work overtime because you've got to rise up and you've got to get as high as you can. You could say in shape or fit. It's another label. Billions of dollars are you there every year for workout places, for home gyms and all that. Not because there's anything wrong with being in shape. The Lord knows. I know I could use more of that. But in our culture, it has become of God and we worship it. And we would soon, we would much sooner miss church than we would a chance that we need to work out. We'll get up early, stay up late. We'll cut back on our diets. But we won't be committed like that to God see, you can call me what you want, Daniel says, but you can't change my identity. And in the first few verses, the Bible goes on to say, not only did they try to change their language, I mean, their their names, but they said, you're going to have to learn our language, you're going to read our books, you're going to go to our courses, and they inundated them and tried to overcome them with Babylonian values and morals and priorities. And if we were modernizing this and, Fast forward to the 21st century, we could add this, and you'll watch our movies, and you'll look at our TV, and you'll listen to our music, and you know why that's important to realize it? Because what Babylon was doing was giving them a new world view. They said, this is the lens by which I want you to see everything, and see, that's what happens in our culture. See, they said, here's the internet, and here's all the things on social media, and here's the books and the movies and the magazines and the covers and all these things. And see, every time you pick it up, every time you read an article, every time you listen to a song, the world is giving you their view of life and everything in it. A worldview. And that's why the course wasn't three days or three weeks or three months. It was three years. Because the gradual assimilation was almost undetectable over time. And that's what happens in your life and mine and the life of our children. We allow Babylon University to tell us how to view life and how we view marriage and what a family really is. I was in the hotel staying there when we were at McKenzie's at Liberty, and I was over the counter Was a big TV and it had CNN running those running headline, head, headlines on it. And it said this, The traditional definition of a nuclear family is holding us back. In other words, a mom and a dad with children, we need to discard that because it's holding us back from what we really should be. And that's the world. I mean, you can't even stand in the lobby checking in a hotel without seeing it. How we view sex and how we view gender and who you are, a man or a woman, what is right and wrong, what is true and false, all of it is up for grabs today in Babylon all of it. And you don't think that it impacts Christians? A Barna study said this, 62% of Americans claim that they are deeply spiritual. But the question the survey asked was, how does being deeply spiritual affect your decisions? 31% said this, I make all my moral choices based on what feels right in the moment. 18% said, I only make decisions in life based on what's best for me and I don't really consider anyone else. said, I make moral decisions based on what the Bible says. 16%. Because the reality at the conclusion of the survey was this, most Christians have non-Christian worldviews. They don't view the world, sexuality, family, who they are, genders. Very few Christians view it differently than the world in which we live. And can I tell you this? That's a problem. You know why? Because if you're a Christian, your worldview is going to be tested. It's going to be tested. The text us, tells us that very clearly. In verses 10 through 20, which we read most of, Daniel and his three friends are going to undergo their first test. And the first test, hear me, was not the big ones to follow, like interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar when your life was on the line. It wasn't whether you'd bow down and be thrown in the fiery furnace. It wasn't whether you'd keep praying and be thrown in the lions. And I mean, those are, those are huge events. But you know what the first test was? What you would eat and drink every day. I wrote down in my notes, little everyday choices determine who you are. Little everyday choices determine who you are. I was listening to a sermon in the car going back from Liberty University, and the speaker was telling a story about an article that he read about a man in the 1970s who from jail was telling his story. And his story was that when he was a young boy about 12 years old, his dad had a beautifully, beautiful gold watch. He loved this watch. It was very expensive. He wore it. It was one of the greatest possessions he had. Well, his son never got to touch it or be around it. And one day when his dad was off at work, he went into his office, took the gold watch out of the box, and was messing around with it, trying it on, playing with it. He dropped it, and he cracked the crystal. It was appalling to him. He knew how much his dad loved it, and he knew he was in serious trouble. So he decided to do this. He put the watch back in the box, put it back where he found it, and said nothing Decided to do nothing. And then that night, his dad comes home, gets the wash out, looks at it to his horror. It's all cracked and broken. He gets all the family together, shows them the wash and said, who could have done this? Nobody said anything. Everyone was punished. The little boy said nothing while everyone took the heat. And then he said, as he told from jail his story, he said it was 20 years later, when I was in my 30s, I wasn't being careful when I was driving and a little boy ran out in the street and I ran him over with my car. He goes, no one was around. No one saw me. He said, you know what I did? I ran. I hid myself so that no one would know that I did it. He said, well, it was only a few weeks later. Eventually they found out that it was me. It was my car. And I was arrested And for the last 30 years of my life, I've been in prison. And then he said this. He goes, because what I was as a child is what I was as an adult. And the reason I hit the child with the car and ran is because when I was a little boy with a little watch, that's how I chose to respond to life. And I thought about that and I said, you know what? It's the little things, isn't it? It's the little d- decisions and choices that we make that determine the direction and the flow of our character and who we are. Little everyday choices determine the big ones. And I've got to tell you, I believe this one's first, and the only reason Daniel and his friends didn't bow down and didn't succumb to the furnace or the lion's den is because they decided early on that we would be faithful to God, big things, little things, no matter what. That's why it's important in your life. And by the way, that's why I think it says in Daniel 6, when he did face the lion's den, you know what he did? He says he prayed three times a day. He opened his window toward Jerusalem. Why? Because he was in Babylon, but he lived for Jerusalem. And he showed himself, says, every day, I open the windows. Jerusalem, God, you're it in my life. And he prayed three times a day, and it says, as he had always done. See, it was the little things, like reading your Bible seeking God in prayer every day, not letting other things get in front of him, making him the most important thing in his life with something he did when there were no trials and there were no furnaces and there were no lion's bins. And when it came time for the big choices, he was ready. Why? Because every day, in little ways, Daniel and his three friends had made God ultimate. And that, by the way, is what verse 8 means. And Daniel resolved, New King James says, Purpose in his heart. You and I do this dualistic view of your heart is, my head is one thing, my heart is the other. The Bible doesn't view it that way. The heart is the core of who you are. It's the center of who you are. It's what you really believe. And here's what Daniel says. If you want to make it in Babylon, it starts on the inside. It starts on having a core, a heart that believes certain things, holds on things. Here's why. Because God is ultimate in your life. Not what other people think, Think not what the consequences of your choices are, but who God is. And he resolves, as a young man, in the smallest and littlest of things, that God would be ultimate in his life. See, you and your children, you will not live for God in Babylon unless that inside is true of you. But can I say, listen, listen, it's more than that. Four times in chapter 1, the Bible lists Daniel and all three of his friends' names and lumps them together as a group. Can I tell you this? If you're going to live in Babylon in an anti-God culture and live pro-God, you are going to need friends that are going through the same thing. That's why we have small groups. And not just Sunday school classes. You know why? Because you need to pray with people, talk with people, go to their house, share what's going on in your life. You need someone, and our teenagers included, who is going through this and say, hey, I know what you're talking about. I faced that yesterday. Here's what I did. I blew it yesterday. I need your encouragement so I don't keep blowing it. See, that's why we have those small groups. And Daniel said, I won't eat the king's meat or the wine which he drank, because I'm resolved. See, when it came to the Babylonian buffet, Daniel and his three friends want to say this. We're not eating or drinking your stuff. Now, it could be because of dietary laws in Leviticus they thought would dishonor God. It could be, some commentators say, because the meat and the wine was offered to pagan gods first, and they didn't want to partake in that idolatry and that association. And those may be well and true, but I think the ultimate reason was this. Daniel and his friends were looking for opportunities to say this. We're in Babylon, but the true God is the God of the Bible. And we want to find ways that we can point to him and show that he is supreme, that he's the real true God, and we really do love him above all else. I'm reading a Bible, a book I should say, in preparation for this series called The Daniel Dilemma by Chris Hodges. And he says that he was preparing to be a lawyer at Louisiana State University, that he was in the um, break room at his job working on campus and uh, reading his Bible. He decided he wanted to be conspicuously Christian, so he's reading his Bible and in the corner of the break room, drinking a cup of coffee, and he said walked in a bunch of guys who knew him somewhat, and were making fun of him for being a Christian. He was reading his Bible, they were joking about him, and then all of a sudden behind them, a minute or two later, came this guy from the campus police, which he knew a little bit, and his name was Muhammad. He said he was a Middle Eastern guy, and he was very big and muscular, and he walked in, and immediately his presence is obvious. Well, right away, Muhammad starts joking around and making fun of the Christian with their Bible, and then he said it was a minute or so later that Muhammad walked over him, over to him. He's reading his Bible, and he says to him, you don't actually believe that stuff that you're reading, do you? He says, yes, I do. I believe that it's the word of God. I really do. He goes, no, you don't. And he mocked him. He goes, no, you don't. He goes, when push comes to shove, you don't really believe it. He goes, oh, no, you're absolutely wrong. I do. And then, smack. He backhanded him across the face so hard that he fell off his stool, knocked his coffee off, and his Bible onto the floor. Well, he, he got up completely surprised, and not to say a little hurting. He picked up his Bible and he said, what is that for? He said, well, because if you really believe everything in that book, then your next move is to turn your other cheek. And he said, Chris Hodges says, in my heart, what I wanted to do was either hit him, which would have been totally stupid, because he would have killed me. (laughs) He goes, or run. He goes, I didn't do either. You know why? He said, because I knew this was a test. So he stood up, put his Bible down, and he said, go ahead, hit me again. And the guy said, no. He goes, you don't mean that. He goes, I do, go ahead. So he hauled off with his real palm and hit him again to the floor. He recovered from that. He said he saw stars. Grabbed his Bible, sat back down in his chair, and started reading the Bible. He goes, for about a full minute, Muhammad stood over him, just staring at him. And then he pulled out the chair next to him and said, you're the first real Christian I've ever met in my life. He goes, I want you to tell me for the next hour what you believe and why you believe it, because I'm interested. And it changed his life. A real Christian... Teenagers, when you go to school this fall, and you're the only one who prays at lunch, maybe you bow down at your locker and say, God, here's my day. When you're the only one who doesn't go to the parties on the week, will they see that you're a real Christian? Not because you're odd different, but because you're God different. See, Daniel and his three friends worked within the Babylonian system, but they were different than the babylonian system they were markedly different not because they weren't in there but because they were in jerusalem and jesus at the same time see singles well, people at your job and your work and when you're out will they see that there's a difference in your lifestyle that everyone else cusses you don't say those words they don't come out of your mouth every other time see you're different than they are See, when you go to your job and everyone else is working for the money, getting ahead, lying, stealing, cutting corners, see, do they see that when you're at your job, you come in on time and you leave late? Do they see, oh, that's a real Christian. You see, nearly every single moment of our life, it is a test. And the question is which city, not we live in, but which one we live for So God says, here's how you live for me in Babylon in America. You have to make the connection because who I am should determine and define who you are. The question is, is that true of you? So ask yourself, who am I really? Let's close in prayer. Just a moment we're going to close our service by singing hymn number five, hundred and twelve. Jesus is all the world to me, all the world to me. My life, it says. That's my life, is he? Is who he is impact and define who you are? Or when you step into your job or step into your school or step into being with your friends or on the ball field, you're completely someone else. Your identity totally changes like a chameleon. Or do you live it out every day? I mean, in the small ways and the large ways. Father, help us. Help us never to forget who we are. As Mike saying, we are yours. We are yours. May that be true in every thought, every desire, every word, every motive, every action that others might see real Christians in us. And we'll thank you for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.